The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. So good to be with you today, and thanks for coming out to, uh, to worship God and to gather uh, and to, to spend this special day together. Well, about once, twice a year, um, and really no more than that, I have the opportunity, believe it or not, to preach on whatever I want. And uh, usually our teaching series is really set in, in place and planned uh, often well in a year in advance, and every Sunday is accounted for, and we preach through books of the Bible or big chunks of Scripture, going through a big theme in Scripture. Uh, for instance, last week we just ended an 18-week series um, through the book of First Peter, where we had a great time preaching through every single verse in, in the book of First Peter. And from time to time, we have a week like today where we're out of series, and out of series. And so before we do that, before we jump into uh, our message for today, I want to tell you where we're going next week. And I'm really excited about this new series. It's somewhat brief compared to the one we just got out of, uh, but I'm really excited about it. We're going to spend six weeks going through a large theme in the Gospel of John. And it's centered around Jesus' teaching in John chapter 8, verse 12, which he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And so this series that we're going to enter into is called Brighter. I think we got some sort of graphic uh, that we can put up that I worked really, really hard on. Okay, there it is. Thanks. <laughs> put it up. <laughs> um, Jesus aims to tell us in this is that there's something about following him. There's something about the light of life, of knowing Jesus, that, f- that touches every area of our life and impacts every nook and cranny. And so we often think of our life of like the secular and the sacred. Right, so there's the sacred area of life, there's the sacred part of life, and that's going to church and reading your Bible and praying to God, and then there's the secular. There's the things like your work, and, and your country, and your neighborhood, and uh, your future, and, and, and um, your marriage, uh, and all these things, and God doesn't really, he doesn't cross over the other side of the track, so to speak. But we see that Jesus is saying that when he is in our life, when we follow him, that he makes every area, in a sense, brighter and meaningful, that his gospel and his truth touches every area of our life. So specifically through this series, we're going to hit on six areas of life. One, life is going to be next week. We're going to talk about how following Christ gives us a brighter life, work, family, church, city, and our future. And so we're going to spend six weeks going through uh, this theme, this big chunk in John. He talks about Jesus being the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so, so excited for that. If you're new with us, new to Holy Cross, uh, come back next week as we jump into that series. Uh, If this is your church home, uh, it's going to be a really great time together as we continue to put Christ to the center, talk about him, and grow in our relationship with him. So here's where we're going today. Uh, I'm going to preach about, are you ready? I'm going to preach about everything. Everything. Isn't that great? We're going to learn about everything. That's pretty great, isn't it? So, moms, you're going to go home, and maybe you're going to run into someone and say, how was, how was your Mother's Day? You're going to say, it was really great. We started the, started the morning out going to church. And they say, well, what did the pastor talk about? And you're going to say, everything. Everything. He preached about everything. You can really take that graphic off now. It's, I know it's good, um, but it's, no. Everything. So the Internet says this, and, and this is because uh, if you start the sen- a sentence like that, then you know it's going to be true, right? The Internet says this. Um, 
a typical adult makes about 35,000 decisions a day, conscious decisions a day. Everything from what you're going to order at Starbucks or what you're going to wear uh, to the advice you're giving a hurting friend to the route you're going to take into work. I mean, you might not think about it, but there, there's got to be thousands, thousands, okay? Uh, what does it take to make good choices? What does it, make to, what does it take to, to make good choices and to live your life well in everything? Okay, that's how we're going to talk about everything today. What does it take to do anything, to do it the right way, and to do it at the right time? What does it take, in other words, to live your life? It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom to live our life in that way. We're going to go to the number one book in the Bible uh, that is the number one uh, source for wisdom. It's the book of Proverbs. And we're going to start really in the, in the, the number one place in the number one book about wisdom and that's chapter 1 in the first chapter. And so we want to read just the first nine verses in Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to think about wisdom, about living our life well. And those 35,000 decisions that we make every day, how do we know we can make them um, and do them right? So Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. What is wisdom? We see here that wisdom even has this motherly attribute to it. And mothers not only need wisdom, but actually give wisdom as you lead your children and your family. What is it? See, wisdom is one of those odd words that is best understood by context. It's hard to describe what wisdom is. And in a sentence, it's kind of like a word beauty. You know, how would you define beauty? Well, you understand it best by kind of what, describing it and describing things that maybe are beautiful. And that's what our, that's what our writer here does, Solomon, in, in, in wisdom. He talks about, well, this is what wisdom is. And he describes it to us. He uses words and synonyms to describe um, my wife, Janae, she has, a, she has a great story that she has shared. I just think it's like one of the most hilarious things uh, to define this phrase. She goes, she, she, she's talking to our son, Cohen, and, and, and Cohen says, Mommy, what, is, what does I don't know mean? You know, so if you're a parent, it's, it's, or even if you spend time with little kids at all, you know it's difficult sometimes to describe words, and you find yourself just going around in circles defining a word, and you end up defining a word by other words that are hard to define, and so you end up nowhere. Well, our son says, what does I don't know mean? And she says, well, what do you think it means? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> you see, it is just, okay, it's one of those words. It's like we don't know what it means, but... We can know how to use it. We know how to see it. We, when we see it, something that's, when we see wisdom, when we see beauty, we, we know what it is like. And wisdom is kind of like that. We, we, we best understand its meaning by seeing it in practice, using it in a sentence, looking at synonyms that are equally difficult to define. And Proverbs 1 says this, and look at some of the words that are used here in Proverbs 1. Wisdom is to have insight. 
in verse 2, to have insight into things, to, to see things maybe that other people don't see, to kind of have a vision and an eye and a perspective for things that others might look over. So it's maybe the details or the things that are often overlooked, to have discretion in verse 4, to know how to uh, do things. Uh, diff- you know, you can, you can do one thing, in, you can do one thing in a situation and do uh, the exact different, a, a different thing in a different situation. So what might be right today, what action might be right today, might be wrong tomorrow. And it's discretion, wisdom is having discretion to know the difference. When is it right to do this and when is it wrong to do this? To be prudent in verse 4, to be, to be wise, to be just, to be equitable. Wisdom could be summed up in this way. It is knowing the right thing to do in the right way at the right time. No big deal, right? 35,000 decisions a day just like that. It's just a long way of saying how to live your life. Wisdom is knowing how to live your life, how to live your life, how to make decisions. So wisdom is complex. There's a lot to it. And Solomon is trying to get to this and to try to give us some understanding of what it means to live life in this way. Is, is wisdom uh, being morally pure and good? Is, 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 a, is a good and moral person a wise person? Well, well, sure, but it's definitely more than that. Is it possible to be a moral and good person and still be foolish? Sure, absolutely. Here's an example. A morally upright person who mows their lawn in the middle of a rainstorm is an idiot. <laughs> I did this one time. I was a young teenager in central Ohio. My dad gives me some instruction to go mow the lawn. And when he says this, it's a beautiful day out. It's not raining. And by the time I fill up the, the mower with gas and get all my stuff together and, and get out to the lawn, it's pouring down rain. And I think, well, my dad told me to mow the lawn. And so here I am mowing the lawn in a rainstorm. An idiot. Morally good. Morally upright. And yet a fool. So wisdom is more than being a good and moral person. What about, is it being experienced? Is wisdom being an experienced person? Well, sure, wisdom comes with experience. Doing something the right way comes through experience. There's trial and error. You fail and, and, and you fail and, until you get it right. That is why people might say you are wise beyond your years. What are they saying? They're saying that wisdom comes with age and that the more you try and try and fail, you learn how to do it right. And so you have somehow learned how to do it right, and yet you haven't gone through the experiences. You're wise beyond your years. Even children learn a certain kind of wisdom when they touch a hot stove, and they realize that I'm not going to do that again. Experience alone is not wisdom because there are foolish old people, and there are foolish young people. There are wise old people, and there are wise young people. And so there isn't just this perfectly correct correlation between Time and age and experience with wisdom. So it's more than being an experienced person who minimizes failure in their life. Well, let's just do one more. What about is wisdom being successful? Of course, there's wisdom in success, but if you've ever scored a goal for the wrong team, you know it takes much more than just being precise. I got it. I got the goal. But yes, for the wrong team. So wisdom is more than being right, it's more than being successful, it's more than being meticulous and precise, it's more than being experienced and having all your ducks in a row. Here's a, here's a scenario that comes up a lot that I hear and that I've even asked it myself. You have two options. You have two things, two options in your life. 
In a scenario, people come to me and they say, here, there's two things that I can do here. I'm weighing the options. Can you help me discern what to do? And I'm a Christian, and so I want to do the will of God. What does God want me to do? What is the will of God in these two situations that the, that the scriptures don't explicitly forbid or, or even implicitly speak to? And so there's nothing in scripture I can go to that will tell me, choose this direction. And yet I have these two things and I want to follow God and obey him. What is his will for me? You might feel inclined to a certain choice, a certain path, a certain fork in the road, you know, so a certain direction but you're a little skeptical and you ask yourself, how do I know that this feeling is from God? That this, this impulse or this discernment, how do I know this is from God? And how do I know it's not from me or my thoughts in my head? Or how do I know it's not because of the bad oysters I ate last night? Like, who, where are these voices coming from? Where are these feelings coming from? How do I know what God wants me to do? Am I making this decision because of a chocolate overdose? Why am I feeling this way? And so my pastoral, pastorly advice to often when these scenarios are presented is I say this. You may want to write this down. I say, I really don't know. I don't know, and I know that doesn't help, but here's what I can say. Here's what we, here's what we can't say when we have choices like this, these 35,000 choices. We can't say, God doesn't care. Uh, God doesn't have an opinion on, on where I work or where I live or who I date or who I marry. Uh, God doesn't care about, he doesn't have an opinion about what I wear or what I buy or how I feel or my attitudes or thoughts throughout the day. Since God is the creator of all and the judge of all, nothing is mundane for God. And nothing exists that God does not intend to use for his good purpose and pleasure and for our joy. And so everything, in a sense, all 35 decisions matter to God. And so wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the right way and at the right time to maximize God's glory and our joy, to live the life that he intends for us to live. And Solomon says you need wisdom to do that. And there are countless, actually about 35,000 opportunities to increase your pain and your sorrow and your regret or the glory of God and your joy. And that's what wisdom is, 35,000 opportunities to live in light of God's desire for us. And where do we, here's a question, why do we need to be taught this? Why do we need a whole book of the Bible on wisdom? Why do we need instruction and why do we preach about it? And here's really the basic answer, because we are naturally foolish. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says that, that, that uh, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that children are just foolish, uh, just, just children. It means that no one has to be taught how to be foolish. Can I get an amen? So on, on a special Mother's Day, isn't this true? <laughs> you don't have to teach your kids how to be foolish. You don't have to teach, uh, any, you don't have to teach um, neglect. You don't have to teach uh, wickedness and evil. They're the way that we are wired, the way that we wake up in the morning, the way that we react to our impulses is first foolish. Let me say it another way and a little nicer. Instead of saying we are naturally foolish, uh, the other side of that is we are unnaturally wise. So wisdom does not come naturally to us. And that's why we have to learn it. That's why we have to be taught. Think of these three bits of advice. Follow your heart. 
Trust your instincts. Just be yourself. Great advice, right? Now, it's actually really good advice, except for one problem. What if your heart is deceitful? What if your instincts and your judgments are out of touch with reality? What if who you are, what if yourself is an angry person? Uh, An impatient person, an impulsive person, an abusive person. Well, then, if those things are true, then that advice is the worst advice you can give anyone. Trust your instincts. Be yourself. Go with your heart. But what if all that is broken? Foolishness is natural, but wisdom, it's acquired. It is learned. And, and, and mere, mere passing of time and living of life does not make a person wise, just a more coordinated and intelligent fool. That's what time gives us. What does it take to get wisdom? Okay, sorry. Thanks for this wonderful, uplifting Mother's Day sermon, Pete. What does it take? What does it take? What, what is wisdom? We learn that. And why, why do we need to be taught on it? We, we learn that because we're, foolishness is bound up in our heart. But what does it take to gain wisdom? Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is, is central to the living out of the practices and the details and the 35,000 decisions that God has given us as stewards to manage. The fool says, I'm, I'm sure it'll work out. Tomorrow's a new day, and I'm sure everything will be fine. Just keep working at it. Keep pressing in. Keep doing what I know I can do. The Huffington Post uh, published this article recently asking the question, is the Bible a re- reliable guide for morality? It's a great question, isn't it? Uh, is the Bible a, more, a good guide, a reliable guide uh, for morality? And a lot of times when the Bible's talked about and debated and discussed uh, in the marketplace or even in church, um, it's talked about in this way. It's debated that should we really even be following the Bible as our moral guide? Is it really our go-to for how to live life? And I'm not denying, obviously, that the Bible is our moral guide and should be a moral guide. But when we treat the message of the Bible essentially as one of morality, then we're missing something much more important. See, the Bible has a lot of rules in it, but it is not primarily a rule book. The Bible also has a lot of history in it. But it's not primarily a a history book. What is it about and what does it have to do with wisdom? Here, I'll show you. The Bible is a book of God's answer to our foolishness. Primarily, the Bible is a book about God. And specifically, it's a book about God and how he answers the problem of our foolishness through the death of his son, Jesus It is about God's answer to how we have failed being wise, how we have failed to glorify Him, how we have failed to maximize our joy in our 35,000 decisions in the day. It is a book about God's rescue and answer for our foolishness. And so he says, The fear of the Lord is beginning of understanding, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear, there are two ways to fear God, and let's talk about fear, because this is a you can't ignore this structure of this sentence here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. There's two different ways to fear God. The first way is uh, to fear his anger, to fear his condemnation, his judgment. You know who you are. You know the mistakes that you have made. You know your record and your character, 
and you, and you match it up with what, what God's requirement is, and you're afraid of his punishment. You're afraid of his condemnation. Because of your failure to match up to his morality. I'll put the fear of God in him. That's what that means, right? I'll put the fear of God in him. What that means is I'm going to make him, I'll make him regret what he ever did to me. So we're afraid that God treats us like that. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And this leads to anxiety, leads to anger, leads to insecurity. It leads to manipulation and control. It leads to the fear of rejection from God. We're worried, when is enough going to be enough where God is going to abandon me? And there's another kind of fear, and that's the kind of fear, thankfully, that is talked about here, that we are instructed in a way to fear God. The second kind of fear is a fear that comes out of an honor and a submission to and an awe-filled attitude and joy that causes us to more seriously consider the details of our life in light of who God is and who we are and what he has called us to. It's a sobriety of mind in light of God and who he is. Most people and Christians today obey God out of the first kind of fear. Maybe that's you. Most Christians, I would say, obey God out of the wrong kind of fear. Why are you obeying God? Because I'm afraid that I'm going to go to hell. Why are you obeying God? I'm just, I'm afraid. What if I'm alone? What if he doesn't live up to his promise? So I'm going to just do as best as I can just to stack my deck. I'm just not, I'm going to try not to, to make him mad. Because I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. That's how most Christians think as it relates to the fear of God. Afraid that he's going to hurt us. The only way you can fear God in the right way is if you are absolutely convinced See, is how you can fear God in the second kind of way with this awe-filled submission to and love for and respect for is if you are absolutely convinced that He will love you in spite of who you are. The only way that you can fear God rightly that will lead to love and obedience and joy is if you are absolutely convinced that He loves you no matter what. In spite of who you are. That, that, uh, that shoe is not going to drop. That the axe is not going to fall. That he will not go back on his promise. That he will not put the fear of God in you and teach you a lesson. When we figure out how to have this kind of fear, we get wisdom. That's what Solomon is saying. When we figure out how to pursue God in the details of our life with a sobriety of mind, without fearing his condemnation, then we get to start to see life in reality as God intends us to see then we can start making good decisions, motivated by love, not afraid of Him, not insecure about how He feels about us or anybody else. This is a proverb that was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. We know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So how can we pursue this kind of wisdom and have this kind of fear? We'd have to know Jesus. And it's interesting to say, well, where's Jesus in this passage? This is a, this is a scripture that was written hundreds of years before, before Jesus even was uh, on the earth. What does Jesus have to do in this? Where is Jesus in the passage? And I want you to think about Proverbs and this passage specifically in light of all we know of God's word and all of the Bible. How are we to be sure? How are we to be sure that there was a way to pursue God and to fear God and not to fear his anger and judgment for our sin. How can we even know that? We have to go to the cross. 
How are we able to be sure that there's a way to pursue God without being destroyed by Him? We have to go to the cross. It's the only way. The only way of being certain is when we go to the cross, where we see that Jesus died for our foolishness. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Yes, you are naturally wired, bent towards a disposition of foolishness and sin. And because of that, the wages of sin is God's anger, it is His death, it is His wrath and condemnation. But the free gift of God is eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 15, 21 says it this way. For this reason, because I've... And I've got to read all these because it's actually in the Greek, it's one sentence. <laughs> for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might. I'll stop right there, actually. Look at what Paul is saying just in that first portion. He's saying, I am so excited to hear that you trust in Jesus. Why is he so excited? I'm so excited that you put your faith in Jesus dying for your sins. Because this means that you have now unhindered access to God's wisdom. You have now unhindered access to God's love and his riches and his acceptance. The kind of wisdom that will remind you how to live every day in a way that enjoys his immeasurable greatness and plan for your life. I am so glad that you trust Jesus because now you don't need to be afraid for how you live. I am so glad that you trust Jesus because now those 35,000 decisions you don't have to be afraid of. That's how Paul, that's, how, that's what he believes about the gospel. That's what he believes about the work of Christ in our life. That when we go to the cross, that we see he died for our foolishness, and only then can we have wisdom. Moms, do you know what your biggest asset is when it comes to being a mother? It's not your experience. It's not your insight. It's not your knowledge. It's not your morality. It's not your character or your record. However, all those things are so good. Your biggest asset for being a wise mother is the cross. When you have this, there is an ease of freedom in your life. When you know that Christ died for your foolishness, that He loves you in spite of who you are and your failure, you have unhindered access to wisdom. You have a freedom in your life to get it wrong. Okay, 35,000, I got like 34,998 wrong. Does he still love me? Well, you have to understand the cross. If, you, if your biggest asset is the cross, then you see his love poured out for you. If your biggest asset is your morality, your character, your record, your wisdom 
your insight, then, then you got a tough road ahead. You just need to be a better mom. You need to be better. You need to be more like so-and-so. You, need to be, uh, you just need to read more books about being a good mom. But if you know who you are because of what the cross says, you have freedom. And what blocks this kind of wisdom? What blocks this kind of freedom? Not just for moms, but for anyone, speaking to everyone in the room. What blocks this kind of access to wisdom? The wrong kind of fear. Shame. Shame of failure. Shame of our limitations. The wrong kind of fear that focuses on our record. What do I mean by our record? What do I mean by your record? The record is basically the story of how well or how poor you've lived your life. So I told you this, story, this, this sermon's about everything, right? The, story, the sermon is how to live your life. So your record is taking that concept and, and asking yourself, how have I lived my life in everything in, as, it, as it relates to the standard of God? So that's what I mean about your record. The right kind of fear of the Lord is the beginning of a lifelong discipleship process where we learn how to see our lives according to God's reality. The right kind of fear enters us into and invites us into a lifelong process of learning from God and His wisdom and applying this knowledge of the cross and Jesus dying for our foolishness in every area of life. Are you so tuned in to Him? Are you so tuned in to His love for you poured out for you on the cross, dying for your foolishness, that you see Him working in your temptations, in your struggles, and in your joys? Do you see Him work in your life at every moment, each step? Are you so tuned in that you're almost thinking the thoughts of God because you're so close to Him and you know Him so well and you spend so much time talking to Him through prayer and through study of the Word and gaining insight from His wisdom? Are you so tuned in that you know how to live your life in a way that will glorify Him and bring you joy? That is a lifelong process of knowing His love. That is a lifelong process of being real, of being how God intended us to live, in step with Him, learning from His wisdom. And here's the hardest thing to come to terms with, I think, whether you're a mom or anyone else. Most of us, because this is it, to grow in wisdom, we need to be so in tune with God and His love for us. Here's the hardest thing to do, to, to come to terms with. Most of us, if not all of us, do not like to grow the way that God wants us to grow. Most of us do not like to learn God's love on His terms. We want to learn God's wisdom and know His love on our terms. And I think that's the hardest thing that we're invited into in Proverbs and in the wisdom of God's Word is are you willing to know God's wisdom and His love for you on His terms? Are you willing to gain insight and understanding? Are you willing to gain a perspective that is in touch with reality? Are you willing to go down that process and down that road of discipleship with God? Then we must do it on His terms, knowing that we are cared for, that we are accepted, that we will not be put to shame, that we are hidden in Christ, and there is no safer place to be than in Him and with Him. We want to be loved on loved by God on our terms, but our wisdom, remember, by nature is foolish. And so when we say, God, I want to be loved by you in this way, or I want to gain wisdom in this way, what we're saying is, God, I want you to choose a path of foolishness so that I can feel comfortable. Wisdom is learned like a, like a garden is grown. 
it's cultivated, it, it's nurtured, it's tended to over a long period of time. But the start is to begin with, we, 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 the start is to begin to see how God works in us, that it's much like a vending machine and much more like a, like a crock pot. You know that. You've, I put the quarter in, I prayed to God, I asked Him for wisdom, and now I'm just banging on the glass because it hasn't fallen yet. You know what I mean? Does that describe your life? But I prayed, I opened up my Bible, and I read, and I'm in a Bible study, and I go to church, and it's just not happening yet. He's saying, this is learned, it's cultivated, it's a lifelong process of knowing His love for you. And we have to, in a sense, have to relearn everything that we've been taught because by nature and by culture, we are being transformed to learn things that are so out of touch with reality. And God says, I will, my wisdom will flip on its head the wisdom of the world. My wisdom is foolishness to the world. And there will be this great reversal that when we see God's wisdom, what was seen as foolishness in the world will be seen as wise. And what will be seen as wise and profitable and good in this world and powerful will be seen as, as leading to destruction and as foolish. There's this uh, tremendous story that I would recommend to every adult and child alike, and that's the Velveteen Rabbit. I don't know if you've read it. It's, it's uh, pretty terrific, and it was given to me as, as a gift on my ordination. You know, everybody else was giving me uh, engraved, you know, like business card holders and crystal crosses, and then someone gave me a children's book. And it was my favorite gift of all. There was this velveteen rabbit, you know, it was this new rabbit, velveteen, pretty cheap material, brand new, real shiny uh, and fluffy, put together perfect as a gift, and, and, and really spent all of his time on the nursery floor, not really played with, spent all of his time in the, in the, in the toy closet, uh, in the toy cupboard, just kind of kept uh, safe. And many other to- toys were worn out and ragged and didn't really know. He didn't have anything to compare himself to as what it meant to be a real rabbit, to be real. And so he was wondering what it meant to be real. Uh, and if he was really a, a real rabbit at all, if he really had what it, what it takes or if he was genuine because everyone looked different than him and he, was, he wasn't played with. And there was a toy in the nursery that lived there longer than any other toy, and it was a skin horse. Uh, and he had, bad, he had bald patches all over him, and, and it says his tail was ripped out. He had just a couple strands left. I mean, just this ragged, tatted up, uh, not tatted up, that's like, you didn't know. <laughs> Tattered up, I don't know. He's just this real rebel horse, just like cussing in the nursery. No. <laughs> he didn't have much going for him. You look at this horse, and it's like, you obviously have been neglected, and, and, and you are not real. Real is, is maybe me. He's trying to figure this out. And, and he has this conversation with this, with this, uh, uh, this horse who's in a gang. And, um, and he says, I'm just going to read to you a couple pages if you're okay with that. And he says, what is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? he asked, or bit by bit? 
It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen so often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in your joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. You see, what was so special about this skin horse was that he was the most wise toy in the nursery. Wisdom. He had gained wisdom for how to live life and what was real. And here you have this unwise rabbit who was out of touch with reality, who's learning what does it mean to be real. And learning the journey of becoming real is one that is long, that is often painful, that often uh, messes us up. But when we are loved, it is very good. And we won't mind so much the process that we have gone through to get to that place because we will be in the most safe place possible. And for us, that's in the love of Christ. Wisdom is learned. Wisdom is something deliberately that God desires to do in each and every one of us. What it takes to be wise is a daily visit to the cross where we see that Jesus' love was poured out for us for our foolishness. And a daily visit to him where we say, can you tell me once more what you think of me? Can you tell me once again if I'm okay? Can you tell me once again what it takes to live my life and to make these decisions? And he reminds us of his love. He reminds us of his care. That it covers over our foolishness. And then we are free. We are free to listen to God. We are free to endure pain. We are free to obey. We are free to enjoy him. We are free to be daily changed by the love of God. And the only way to do this is to be absolutely sure that we are not condemned by him, but we are loved by him. So on a day where I can pick just, I get two days a year where I get to preach on anything I want. I wanted to preach on everything. <laughs> a daily visit to the cross that, 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 reflect, that deals with everything in our life, how to live our life how to be wise. Moms, I hope that you feel honored and blessed in that, that you are free to fail, that you are free to be a mess, and that you are free to go to the cross every single day. And for everyone, everyone else in here, we are free to do the same. Let's go get it. Let's pray.